From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Tonight, a special Security Matters edition of Government Matters. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's cybersecurity supply chain certifications will roll out at the beginning of 2021. Katie Arrington is Chief Information Security Officer for Acquisition at the Defense Department. She's overseen the development and deployment of the cybersecurity maturity model certification. She told me how the department will certify the auditors who will audit the companies. So we took the model itself and we have been working with, uh, as we have from the very beginning, Johns Hopkins, uh, Carnegie Mellon, SEI, um, the Department of Defense and the accreditation body uh, training uh, working group to create the training uh, that is standardized for all of the C3PAOs and individual auditors that will come through assessments. Um, even in COVID-19, they have been working diligently. Uh, actually, yesterday they were uh, doing some uh, Pathfinder simulation on taking the actual uh, assessment testing and see how they scored and to make sure it was mapping out correctly, that we were getting what we wanted from the training and the curriculum. How standard are the standards, Katie? Will they evolve over time or are they set and contractors work to that? and that's pretty much it. The standards should evolve. Um, what we're in the process of a default rule change on the CMMC um, that will uh, be public. Uh, there's a public event in, uh, well, with COVID, I'll say it's in May sometime. But the, the model the way it stands, Rev.1, will be what we create the training against. As the threats evolve, as the way the adversary comes at us changes, as technology evolves, we will modify with industry, with the accreditation body, with NIST, how that looks. So a year from now, it may be slightly different. Um, as we look through the initial pathfinders, I'm sure we're gonna be tweaking some things, but the whole pretense of the model was to evolve as the cyber threat and cyber um, ecosystem changed. What happens if I'm one of the companies that goes through at the very beginning, Katie, and a year from now the standards are different? How do you follow up or how do I as the company follow up to make sure that I continue to be qualified to do business with the department? So the stand when you get certified from the auditor who can only be from the CMMC accreditation body, um, that will be good for three years. So we need to ensure that we A, um, get you set up ready as a company that you're ready, willing, and able, and capable to do the work that we need. But also part of this is that we'll actually have an interaction so that we can really start helping companies with getting threat information in a more timely manner with the accreditation body and with the government. It opens up a, a communication link. Um, one of the, the groups, um, agencies that the government has, we don't get a lot of visibility into is DC3. Um, this is going to help connect small businesses more easily to DC3, the, the Defense Cyber Crimes um, Unit, also with the ISACs. You know, we have a National Defense ISAC, we have a Space ISAC. This is gonna help us get threat out to the small businesses specifically to help them with patches, with updates more effectively. There's some concern from the small business community, Katie, that this is going to make it more difficult for them to do business with the department at the very time the department's saying we want to do 
more with small businesses, especially companies that traditionally haven't done business with the Pentagon. What are you doing to try to mitigate whatever challenges this will present for small businesses? So I came from small business. The whole purpose of the, the um, CMMC uh, was making a unified standard so that we could lower the barrier for entry for those non-traditionals and small businesses that may have never done or thought that they wanted to do work with the government before. Because we're, we're putting out a clear, concise message, um, the requirement on CMMC level one, which we need to level set the industry to understand that's what most contractors will have. There's 17 no-cost controls to implement. There's simple things like updating your passwords and making sure that you have something to remind yourself to do that. Um, and the fact that we're willing to pay for that, that making security an allowable cost, that the minimal amount of money that will be required um, under $3,000 is, is what we're focusing on for CMMC level one will be a barrier that will actually lower it for those small and non-traditionals, that they have a clear, concise, um, we need to do these to get involved with the government. It's timely. But what it also does is it level sets competition for small businesses. Today, if a small business has DFAR clause 252.204.7012 that actually ensures that they have the NIST, the National Institute of Science and Technology's special publication 800-171 R1, that they have the 110 controls that they're supposed to be doing today if they're touching controlled unclassified information. The way the process works right now, that we all self-attest. Everybody says, I'm doing the 110 controls. Some small businesses maybe have a POAM that they're only doing 80 of the controls and that they're self-attesting, that they're NIST compliant, that they're compliant with that DFAR clause, their rate will be lower versus a company that is actually implementing all 110 controls. They are both technically acceptable by the core. When they look at you know, who has the capability, they're both attesting. So it actually, right now, the current model that we have out, the current DFAR rule is actually, it, it makes it uneven in competition for small businesses. The CMMC is a go, no-go decision. You either are or you aren't ready. You either are certified or you're not. There's no ambiguity. And that is huge for small business. Plus, we're willing to pay for what we need our industry to be able to do. Coming next, the executive branch's gift for the holidays, a big cyber breach. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what a big breach looks like from the inside out. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The cyber breach of federal agencies, including Commerce, Treasury, State, and NIH a few weeks ago, was probably the biggest of 2020, and it could be one of the biggest in government history. The Wall Street Journal reports one insider calls it a 10 out of 10 in severity and national security risk. A few days after the government made the breach public, I asked Greg Tuhill, the former federal chief information security officer, what he took away from the reports about the breach. You know, frankly, I believe, Francis, this is the tip of an iceberg, a really big supply chain uh, uh, attack iceberg as part of a, uh, a nation state campaign. 
so we all need to be paying attention to this. And, you know, frankly, I don't think that solar winds, fire eye, uh, that they're, they're only the tip of the iceberg out there. The analogy that another security professional gave me over the weekend, Greg, was that this is the hole through which the, uh, the, the floodwaters come into the basement. This is not the actual floodwaters itself. Is that an apt analogy, do you think? The, the, and I'm referring to the fire eye solar winds element of this. Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, it, it's an interesting uh, metaphor uh, of how we uh, try to look at this. But, you know, frankly, as we take a look at our, our strategy and where we are and where we're going, what the adversaries are demonstrating in terms of uh, capabilities, you know, uh, this should be a wake-up call that we need to rethink our strategy, we need to rethink cyber deterrence, and we need to do things that we know would help in this particular uh, instance, such as uh, accelerate uh, zero trust. We've had paralysis by analysis. It's time to really get moving on zero trust as a security strategy, not only across federal government, but frankly, in the private sector, defense, industrial base, et cetera. What's your, what's your sense of what happens, maybe not in this specific instance, but uh, broadly, what happens at OMB? What happens in the individual agencies that have had a challenge, that have had a breach when something like this occurs, Greg? What's the chain of events? Well, frankly, Francis, we've got to assume that every department and agency has been breached uh, in, in this case. Uh, so, you know, going in and assuming breach, uh, we are protocols for uh, convening things like the Chief Information Security Council to do a damage assessment, a risk exposure assessment, and, and uh, activities like that. Uh, we don't have enough hunt teams in the U.S. CERT and Cyber Command and NSA combined to go through every department and agency. So the immediate action is to assume that you're breached and then work from there. Uh, but I would have that CISO Council uh, convening uh, on a crisis action team uh, basis uh, to make sure that we have a, a good site picture as far as what our risk exposure is, to do a damage assessment. And then for those high value assets that have already been identified uh, by the departments and agencies, I would be uh, assessing them as part of my first uh, hunt team uh, looks. That security professional that I referred to a few moments ago, Greg, told me that her greatest fear is that there will be some kind of widespread accountability, warranted or not, like we saw after the OPM breach in 2015. What's your sense of what accountability, if anything, looks like in the wake of this? Well, you know, from a, a you know, let, let's not punish the victims for being victims. Uh, you know, this requires some mature leadership, but it also requires us to take a, a, a very good look, as I mentioned earlier, into are we in fact on the right course? Uh, are our strategies, are our uh, protections that are currently in place sufficient to meet the current uh, environment that are out there? You know, as a military commander, uh, sure, you know, you take a look and you say, well, did the commander fail uh, when uh, the enemy had a successful attack? Or do you just uh, make the decision, you know, the enemy's pretty good and, uh, you know, you want to live to fight another day? We don't take our commanders out and shoot them every time the enemy attacks. 
what we do is, is we assess whether or not our strategies, our operations, our plans, our tactics, techniques, and procedures are effective. And that's what we need to be doing right now. So that last use of strategy, of the word strategy was your third in our conversation so far, Greg. Where's our strategy lacking now, do you think? And where should it change? How should it change? You know, frankly, I think as we take a look at our strategy, there's been a lot of positives um, that we have in there. However, uh, we're still leveraging that perimeter defense model that, the, you know, frankly, military strategists have been using for as long as history has been written. Um, zero trust is uh, gaining acceleration in both public and private sectors. Uh, from a strategy standpoint, I don't think we can wait any further. And particularly as we outsource more and more, as we go into more as a service uh, engagements uh, from a federal government standpoint, uh, zero trust is the only uh, strategic approach that is holding weight. And you know, as we take a look at where we want to be, uh, we need to rethink. And um, for my money, if I were still in office, I'd be pushing hard to implement zero trust everywhere. Quit analyzing it, get out there and uh, implement it. Coming next, the biggest security stories of the year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the choices from two experts on the security beat. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. As 2020 comes to a close, we're looking back at the biggest security stories of the year. Jason Miller, executive editor at Federal News Network, and Aaron Boyd, senior editor at NextGov, have made their choices for the biggest security stories of the year. Aaron, I want to start with you. We've talked on this program uh, and in the last several weeks about the hack of a number of federal agencies. It seems like there are more and more on an ongoing basis. Uh, and the solar winds vulnerability. Why'd you choose that as the biggest story of the year in your view, Aaron? Yeah, you know, it, it happened right here at the end of the year, but it's definitely going to have an outsized impact uh, across the entire federal government. This is something, SolarWinds is a product that touches everything. And it's not just something that we see in a lot of agencies. In fact, almost every major uh, large agency has SolarWinds somewhere in its enterprise. But the whole point of the software is it touches lots of stuff and it, it monitors lots of stuff. So it has access to lots of stuff. So uh, as we learn more and more about exactly who's affected and who's been compromised, I think this is just going to spread and uh, has easily has the potential to be uh, the biggest hack in federal government history. Jason, this is bigger than if it's the scope that Aaron proposes uh, than the OPM breach in 2015. Do you see it that way as well? It's interesting because Aaron actually put that out on Twitter the other day, and I almost answered the question to Aaron and decided not to because I'm not sure. And I think that's what we don't know. There's so much we don't know about the solar winds hack and how it's impacting the federal agencies. I got off the phone just recently, Francis, with uh, a friend in government who's in the IT world, and they told me basically if they only implemented solar winds to, let's say, the medium level, this may not impact them as much as somebody who implemented it to the high level. But the scary thing about solar winds, which I would agree with Aaron, and this goes to uh, the bigger discussion that we're, I think, are going to have, is this was a supply chain t attack, and this was probably the most significant supply chain attack we've seen maybe ever. Aaron, speaking of supply Definitely. chain, uh, also on your list of stories was the CMMC, 
certification at the Defense Department. That's the whole point of the CMMC is to certify the supply chain all throughout the defense industrial base. Why did you choose CMMC as important and what are the potential implications for preventing future breaches like we saw with uh, the agencies that were dealing with solar winds? Well, uh, to, to Jason's point, and I think to what a lot of cybersecurity professionals will tell you is there's no perfect cybersecurity. So even with a CMMC, something like solar winds could still happen again. I think that's part of the, the big fears uh, as, as Jason was talking about. And uh, just further down the line, can federal agencies trust the tech that they're buying? And that's going to be, I think, going to have uh, ramifications for a long time. CMMC is trying to instill trust, uh, at least for the Defense Department agencies. It's a big deal for lots of reasons, uh, not the least of which is a lot in the industry are worried about how it's going to be implemented, how they're going to pay for it, how it's going to work uh, in the long term. So there's a lot of heartburn, a lot of concern about how CMMC is going to fully roll out. Um, but I, the early signs are it's not only going to be something that's required across the DOD, but I think sooner than later, we're going to see, if not CMMC itself, very similar requirements rolling ac out across civilian agencies as well. Jason, your number one choice for the year was CMMC. If this were the McLaughlin Group, I would tell you that you were wrong. But um, to the point of CMMC, you and I, when we worked together uh, over the years, would ask each other, is this going to stick? Is this going to stick? So I'll ask you again, what's your sense of the stickiness of CMMC as we transition to a new administration? Is something like this breach likely to make it stick where maybe it wouldn't have otherwise? I believe supply chain risk management, the idea behind it, the, high, the, the, the concepts around CMMC will stick for sure. And the reason why is because they, I think agencies have realized, I think organizations have realized, I think the private sector has realized the, 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 the challenge of supply chain and securing the supply chain. So whether we call it CMMC in 2021, 2022 and beyond, it's hard to say, but I can tell you this focus, this rigor, this trust but verify attitude will stay on. And I think SolarWinds just hits that hits home that point because now agencies can point to that and say, look what happened because of a supply chain uh, attack. Uh, I'll couple your interest in security, Jason, with your interest in acquisition. And Aaron, I want you to weigh in on this too. Does the likelihood increase of CMMC or something like it sticking with the fact that GSA is weaving CMMC into a number of its acquisition vehicles? I think there's a lot of concern in, in industry about that, but you have to take a half a step back and look at the bigger picture, which I'm not sure everyone is doing, because the, who is GSA's biggest customer? When you talk about the Federal Acquisition Service, when you talk about the government-wide acquisition contracts, when you talk about the schedules, who is their biggest customer? It is DOD. So if they have to have CMMC within the scope of the contract, therefore, that way, DOD can say, you must be CMMC level three, level four, whatever it's going to be. If they don't have that in the scope of the contract, then they can't ask for that, and then DOD does not use those contracts. So I'm not sure there's a huge concern right now that this will spread in the next year or so. Will supply chain rigor continue in the, in the, in the civilian sector? Absolutely, it has to. Whether it looks like CMMC or not, I, I, just, I think it's too early to say. That left, go ahead. Oh yeah, I think, uh, I think Jason's spot on. The only thing I'd add to that is uh, when we look at people on the schedules, right? Do you need to have a CMMC certification if you're selling to civilian agencies? No, if you have a specific civilian agency customer or two that you're targeting and you're on the schedules or on a GWAC so that they can get to you more easily, 
then you probably don't need CMMC. If, however, you're making your livelihood on the schedules and in GWAX uh, and, and trying to pick up as much business as you can, it's probably something you're gonna wanna get on board with because as Jason mentioned, DOD and, and the branches are time and again, the biggest spenders on all of those. Aaron Boyd, Jason Miller, thanks very much. Terrific insight. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast. If you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.